Would you turn to the text for those of you who like to come to worship with some expectation of what the message might entail. I can kind of help you with what to expect. We started a series several months ago on uh, church membership and, uh, you know, what is a church? What uh, does it do? What is expected demanded from members? Those kinds of things. This is the 19th sermon on the series, which has meandered a bit, but has always been churchy type stuff. My intention is that next Sunday morning, we're going to wrap up the series with basically a, a quick review of, here, here's a reminder of the things that we've learned. My hopes by reviewing what a church is and what a church does and what membership means will be informed and willing and able to put biblical truth into practice. But that's next week. This morning I want to preach a message which I would entitle, Content to Contend. Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. It is evident from the text. This is not a letter that Jude wanted to write. When you look at verse 3 in particular, he tells the readers he wanted to write concerning our common salvation, that is when he picked up his quill pen and dipped it in the ink, it was because he was thinking about the salvation provided through the Lord Jesus and it thrilled his heart to know that the recipients of this letter had experienced that same salvation. You can make a really good argument that Jude's first words in this letter and his final words in this letter are more indicative of the original intent with which he was going to write. He begins in verses 1 and 2 by saying believers are called and sanctified and preserved. They've been granted the mercy, peace, and love of God. And then he ends with this wonderful doxology in verse 25 to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, because We all experience similar problems. The specifics of these problems facing the original readers are described through the the rest of this short letter. There are false teachers and false teaching which has, in verse 4, crept in stealthily and unnoticed. In verse 8, it describes them as dreamers, imaginative rejecting authority. In verse 10, he calls them brute beasts, irrational animals. In verse 12, he says they are spots or stains in your feasts of love. They are like clouds, 
He says they are like clouds that hold the the promise of rain, but never actually give anything life-nourishing to the readers. They are, he says, fruitless, uprooted, twice-dead trees. In verse 16, they are grumblers and complainers and loud-mouthed braggarts. In verse 19, they are sensual persons causing divisions, right? So Jude gets very picturesque in his description. This morning, our goal is not to try to review the whole letter in order to see the specific problems Jude is addressing. Our focus is going to be on the first four verses, the introduction to the letter, which explains why Jude is writing and gives us sort of concrete instructions on how to be ready to address similar problems in our own church. Jude verses 1 through 4 gives the readers confidence in Christ as the basis for contending for Christ. It seems evident Jude's original purpose was to write about that common salvation, but the The joy and wonder of being saved by faith in Jesus is never a message that says, just relax, the battle's over. Instead, our contentment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus is a call to arms. Jude's argument is that the very people in verses 1 and 2 who are called and sanctified and preserved and granted mercy and peace and love of God It is those people who are to contend earnestly for the faith. Victory is assured through the Lord Jesus, but that does not mean the battle is over. I I loved how John Piper described this, so I just want to read this quote for you. He says, Just because the brilliant commander-in-chief promises victory on the beaches does not mean the troops can throw their weapons overboard. The promise of victory assumes valor in battle. When God promises that his church will be kept from defeat, his purpose is not that we lay down our swords and go to lunch, but that we pick up the sword of the Spirit and look confidently to God for the strength to fight and win. Whenever the promised security of God is used to justify going AWOL, we may suspect there is a traitor in the ranks. It is on the basis of being content in Christ that we are called to contend for Christ. The message of Jude 1 through 4 offers us a confidence boost in order to actively engage in the battle for the historic faith. So I want us to see this lesson in four parts, one in each verse. In verse 1, be confident in your relationship to Jesus. In verse 2, be confident in your blessings through Jesus. In verse 3, be confident in what you believe about Jesus. And in verse 4, be confident in how you'll live for Jesus. So first, be confident in your relationship to Jesus. Verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Let's talk for a moment about who is writing this letter. His name is Jude. 
Although, in the course of the sermon, I'm likely to call him James. I don't know why that happens in my head so much, but somebody count how many times I make that mistake. Jude is not an apostle. In fact, we, we see in verse 17, he refers to the apostles and he does not include himself in that group. The most clear identifying mark about Jude, the writer of this letter, is that he calls himself in verse 1 the brother of James. And the James that he is referring to is also not an apostle. The apostle James was martyred very early in the book of Acts. There is only one man named James who we know of in the early church that makes any sense. And that is the James who is seen in Acts chapter 15 as the leader of the church at Jerusalem. That James also happened to have a mother named Mary and a father named Joseph. You go and you read Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, you will find out that James leading the church at Jerusalem was the half-brother of Jesus. And in that verse, the brothers of Jesus are listed as James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. And so let this sink in for a minute. Jude gives us his name. He identifies himself as the brother of of James, so that you know exactly who this is. He was raised in the home of Mary and Joseph. He is a, undoubtedly, he is the bratty little brother of the Lord Jesus, which you also have to think included moments of frustration for a depraved sinner. I mean, how many times did this kid hear, why can't you be like your older brother, Jesus? And at the same time, how could he not love him? It is evident in the Gospels that the Lord's brothers did not believe on him during his earthly ministry. Mark's Gospel even goes so far as to tell us that they accused Jesus of having lost his mind. But the resurrection of Jesus was a turning point for them. Jude sees the risen Jesus and all those those puzzle pieces of his parents' stories about Jesus' miraculous birth and his purpose, all those things seemingly shrouded in mystery, suddenly click into place and Jude knows his half-brother Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is his Savior. And so he surely has more experience and knows more about the character of Jesus than 99.9% of all the other followers of Jesus combined. And so knowing the relationship that he could have claimed here, listen again to what he says. Jude, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant is doulos in the original language. The translators here have tried to show that it's stronger than just servant by using the term bond servant or a servant in bonds, but they have shied away, for whatever reason, they have shied away from using the English word most associated with this word doulos, which is slave. It just means slave. There is no need to shy away from this. The meaning is clear, and Jude's intention is, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. 
Every born-again believer can say this. I am not my own. I do not own myself. I have been bought with a price. The cost of my freedom is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And in that freedom from sin, I am now a slave bound to the Lord Jesus. I serve Him. Judas identified his own relationship with Jesus to remind us about our relationship with Jesus. Think of this. Through the sacrificial death and and victorious resurrection of the perfect child of God, we have been made children of God. It's not just Jude, but it's, it's you and I who can also speak about Jesus as our loving older brother. And yet in that relationship, we must also remember we are bound to him, gratefully bound to him. We, we serve him. Jude reminds us of this calling by saying that he's a slave. And then he also reminds the readers about how it is that they came to be children of God. He says in verse 1, to those who are called, to be called is in one sense to be invited. You have received the, the invitation, the calling to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. But this calling also speaks to what we refer to as the effectual call. The Lord Jesus offers an open invitation for sinners to repent and to receive salvation through faith in Him. But there is also the effectual calling of God in which the Holy Spirit brings a dead sinner to life and draws him to faith in Jesus. As the Lord Himself says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you have received that special calling of God, that drawing to faith in Jesus Christ. James also says they are sanctified by God the Father. The word sanctified is related to the word holy. It means simply, it means to be set aside for a special purpose or set aside for a special use. In the Old Testament, for example, all of the the ornaments and, and, and fixtures of the the tabernacle were said to be sanctified. They weren't for common use. They were set aside only for this special use, this dedicated purpose. And so Jude here says that every child of God should see themselves in their entire lives as being set aside, dedicated for a special purpose. You are a chosen vessel designed, selected, and set aside for the service of the Lord Jesus. And for Jude, that purpose has already been stated when he calls himself Jesus' slave. He says you're preserved in Jesus Christ. Y'all, if you ever wonder about the security of a believer, whether a saved person can lose their salvation, don't. To believe a person can lose their salvation is to believe that Jesus Christ himself could be a failure. Eternal security is not yours to maintain. Jude says you are preserved in Jesus Christ. You know, when, when, he, when Jesus promises everlasting life to all who repent of their sins and believe in him, how long does everlasting life last? 
If your everlasting life only lasted a couple of weeks or a couple of months or a couple of years, it is not the life that Jesus gives because it lasts forever. I don't know where I first heard this, but it has been said, only the work of the Lord Jesus could obtain your salvation and only the work of the Lord Jesus can maintain your salvation. Jude calls us to be confident in this relationship that we have with Jesus. We are called, sanctified, preserved, and we, you and I, should be glad to consider ourselves to be slaves of Jesus Christ. We get to serve our loving older brother. Second, be confident in your blessings through Jesus in verse 2. It says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. By the way, if you ever wonder why Baptist preachers love preaching sermons with three points, although this morning's sermon is four points, Jude seems to love multiples of three. You see in verse one, you're called, sanctified, preserved. And in verse two, he, he prays for the multiplication or increase of mercy and peace and love for each of his readers. It is a bit unusual for a New Testament writer to begin such a greeting with the word mercy. Mercy is best understood by knowing its relationship to the idea of justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. If you've done well, you get the reward that you deserve. But since none of us have done well, we have punishment that we deserved. And justice would be getting that punishment. If you were to stand guilty before a judge in this world, justice is what you deserve, but mercy is what you beg for. Right? Mercy is withholding the punishment you deserve because of the compassion of the judge. We need the, just, we need the mercy of God to withhold the justice of God. And only by getting the mercy of God can we show the mercy of God. Jude, Jude appeals to this early because it's going to come up later on in the letter, down in verses 21 through 23, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. On some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So Jude, Jude would not ask for mercy for the false teachers that he's dealing with here, but for those who have been taken captive by their lives, he says a church has to have some compassionate discernment. Mercy has to be in you before mercy is going to come out of you. And so he asks early on for, he, he makes the prayer that mercy would be poured out on his readers. In fact, we'll hear someone later today say, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In verse 2, peace is a word which can mean anything from peace of mind to, to having peace from war. In the Old Testament, the idea of peace included a kind of comprehensive wellness, all of which comes from God alone. 
our peace from God begins with peace with God. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that we're justified by faith, and so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were at war. We were enemies of righteousness. But the work of Jesus has brought you a peaceful resolution. God has extended his mercy and peace has been made and Jesus has reconciled us to God through faith. And when we have obtained peace with God, then we also receive peace from God, a peace of mind, a contentment, a confidence. Philippians 4, 7 says the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So along with mercy and peace, Jude asks for love to be poured out on the servants of Jesus because God himself is love. Jesus is the perfect expression of God's love. This love is a willingness and a desire to sacrifice your own comfort for the object of your love. Love gives, it acts, it works. And for Jude here, love is given, meaning that God has so loved us that he sacrificially gave for our good, his own son. Verse 2 goes beyond an introductory statement that's just like saying, you know, gee guys, I hope you're doing good the way we would do in a letter, right? This is, you know, since, since Jude knows that every believer is called and sanctified and preserved, the expectation he has is that every believer is going to live under the outpouring of God's mercy and peace and love. These things are yours in Christ. Be confident in the blessings that you have through Christ. He says, may it be multiplied to you. That is, may mercy, peace, and love fill you to the fullest. Now, why does he, why does he pray for this for his readers? Why does he hope for this for them? Well, it's because they're going to need it. Verse 3 starts that letter that Jude doesn't want to write. Jude wants us to be content in our position in Jesus because when you are content, it's then that you will contend for the faith. So look third, to be confident in what you believe about Jesus. In verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Because he has to, right? He says, I found it necessary. Jude pleads with his readers to contend earnestly for the faith. Every group of believers, from the group Jude is addressing to us by extension, faces this call to contend for the faith. It would be the height of foolishness for us to think that in the passing 2,000 years, you know, the, the fight for maintaining the faith has been entirely won and there's now no contending for us to do. So let's try to understand what Jude is saying by contending for the faith. What is 
the faith that Jude says is worth contending for. It is not faith in the sense of saving faith. Saving faith is that action. It is that act of putting your trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus. That is not what Jude intends here. The faith begins with that confidence and trust in Jesus, but extends beyond that to all the doctrines related to the gospel. Look at verse 3 again. He calls it the faith. That is, it is a noun. It is a something. So it's not an act of faith. It is, it is the substance of faith. So it's not so much that Jude is talking about whether or not you believe. He's talking about, well, what is it that you believe? And he goes further to say this faith was once for all delivered to the saints. That is this, this substance of faith, this, this what we believe was given one time for all time to the saints of God. So maybe we could say it like this. Jude has been encouraging his readers to embrace their relationship to Jesus and the blessings that they receive from Jesus so that they will actively engage in the ongoing fight in regard to the truth about Jesus. The faith that Jude is writing about, we we would call it like the the body of Christian truth, right? These truths were not made up by the saints. They weren't invented by the apostles or the prophets. He, He says, look, there was this body of truth, this body of doctrine, the faith was delivered. It was, it was given to the saints. It originated with God. That, that faith was revealed by God. And so that faith is as unchanging as God himself. It was delivered, he says, one time for all time. Right? It is not changing. We are talking about the historic faith. Friends, this This absolutely destroys any of the ridiculous notions that people have today of Christian faith is supposed to accommodate the changing culture or that that it's supposed to adjust with the times. This week I saw an advertisement for a church that is hosting a shame-slaying, hip-swaying drag queen gospel singer known as Flamey Grant. And if you go, well, what kind of crazy church would do that? It is a Baptist church. Now, I know it's an extreme example, but it serves the point. The faith was delivered one time for all time. It is not up for discussion. It does not change. It's not not open for debate. On the other extreme, this verse has been utilized as an excuse for some folks to be contentious about every point of debate that they have with their fellow Christians. Jude is not here endorsing argumentative Christians to be contentious about every question and and difference that people have from the celebration of holidays to, to, you know, whether the forbidden fruit in the garden was a golden delicious apple or a Macintosh apple. Y'all, it probably wasn't even an apple. So can we say it this way? All biblical truth is important, but not all biblical truth is equally clear, nor is all biblical truth 
equally important. My friend uh, Lewis Kiger has described it like this. Look, you teach your kids to tie their shoes and you teach your kids not to play in the road. Both of those things are important, but you know they're not equally important. Jesus himself braced this reality when he scolded the religious leaders of his day for ignoring what he called the weightier matters of the law. This does not minimize other truths to say that there are some truths that are most important. The faith for which we are to contend are those biblical truths which the Bible speaks of most clearly and most frequently. As the age-old adage goes, the, the main things are the plain things. Right? God is Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. He is creator of all things, including humanity. Mankind's sin has put us in rebellion against God. Jesus, God's Son, came, born of a virgin, lived the perfect sinless life. He died on behalf of believers, rose again bodily, so that all those who believe have everlasting life in Him. The salvation that comes by Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the only way of being reconciled to God. These are foundational truths worth fighting for. And we can go, I think, further and even list some Baptist distinctives, right? The, the nature of the Lord's church is clear in the New Testament. Baptism and the Lord's Supper as the church's ordinances are clear. The necessity of Believers' baptism by immersion for membership in the Lord's church. For purposes of this series about church membership, I think it would be wise for us to take a moment to consider biblically what truths about the Lord's church are non-negotiable, clear teachings of the faith, once delivered for all time to the saints. Because Jude, for his part in this letter, has several issues in mind. He addresses those who do not really believe in verse 5. He talks about living rebelliously in verse 8, defiling the flesh and rejecting authority. Materialism and greed is the issue in verse 11. and verse 18, it's the danger of people who will mock the faith by living according to their own ungodly desires. He speaks of the dangers of immoral living throughout this letter. To earnestly contend for the historic faith, a church must be willing to address these areas. It's evident that Jude says these are issues that are worth contending for. And you need to be confident in what you believe in order to uphold the historic faith and the unchanging faith that was given by God to his saints. And if you're not willing to uphold the faith, there's good reason to ask whether or not you really believe it. <clears throat> the fourth point, verse 4. Ooh. Be confident in how you'll live for Jesus. I want you to listen closely to verse 4 again. Because I think when, when we know that Jude is addressing this big issue of false teaching in the church, that we think of these Certain men that he's describing in verse 4 as doing dramatic things like 
like openly and directly denying the truth of the gospel. But that's not what Jude says, or at least that's not how he begins. Listen to verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a concern, he says, for individuals who have crept in unnoticed or snuck in by stealth. Or in other words, this is not as obvious as somebody walking in the back door with a name tag that says, hello, my name is Robert and I'm a false teacher. Right? Hi, my name's Sally. I'm here to lead you astray. It is more sinister than that. It's more stealthy than that. And James does not present them as a loud vocal group. Verse 4 suggests they're not leading people astray by what they're saying, but by what they're doing. So listen, you, you have to understand, you don't have to stand up in front of an audience of students in order to teach. Any of y'all who have had the pleasure of raising children know full well you teach them their bad, the, your bad habits without sitting them down and telling them how to do it. They just see your life and pick up your bad habits. In fact, most people listen, learn less from listening to a lecture than they learn from watching a life. The false teachers that, that Jude is condemning is that they've misrepresented the gospel in the way that they live. Jude gives two areas of concern in verse 4. He says they deny the truth with their behavior, and second, they deny God's authority with their behavior. So quickly, we need to look at both of those. First, they deny the truth with their behavior. He said, they turn the grace of God into lewdness. Or I think the NIV does a great job when it translates this phrase as, they pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. The danger, according to Jude, is there are, there are people who will claim God's grace and then turn around and use that claim as an excuse to live lewdly, to live immorally. Now, what does this sound like in real life? Well, I know the Bible says stealing is a sin, but this is the only way I can get by, and I'm going to keep doing it because nobody's perfect, and I know God loves me. Sure, the Bible says sex is reserved for marriage and that living together is for marriage, but if my boyfriend or girlfriend and I don't try things out, how will we know whether or not we're compatible? We're going to go ahead and do this, and it's going to be just fine. God wants us to be happy. Well, attending church is not the be-all, end-all of righteousness. I can be a Christian without going to organized worship. I can be a member of church without attending the church for years. Having my name on the church roll grants me assurance that I am right with God. No. <laughs> Stealing is wrong, no matter how you justify it. Living together and, and, and sex outside of marriage is wrong, no matter how you justify it. Thinking that your name on a piece of paper solidifies your position with God is wrong, no matter how much comfort it gives you. Such people do not stand up in front of the congregation 
and lecture on lewdness while you're sitting there taking notes. That's not how this false teaching works. It is their teaching by their actions. And the lessons that they teach are telling you and those around you that denying the revealed truth of God is of no great consequence. But Jude says denying truth with your behavior is of great consequence. In verse 4, he says, In the eternal purpose of God, such people have been marked out for condemnation. Why would the Holy Spirit move Jude to write this? Clearly, not because Jude wanted to, or because he takes pleasure in it, but because this is undeniably true, that those who claim to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ who assert that they are part of the body of Christ and yet live steeped in disobedience, they are denying the truth of the gospel by the way they live. Listen, let's be honest about this. Embracing a lifestyle of sin, and I'm not talking about occasionally stumbling or or struggling with a sin, but just giving up and embracing it as a life choice. That is, in James' words, turning the grace of God into lewdness. It is a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his blood in order to make us free from sin, not free to sin. The salvation Jesus brings does not make you free to live however you want. It gives you liberty to live the way he wants. Remember how Jude began this letter? I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Like, does the Lord Jesus have the right to tell you how to live or not? This is where Jude goes next. Not only do the false teachers deny the truth with their behavior, but secondly, they also deny God's authority with their behavior. Look, he says in verse 4, they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord there shows up a couple of times, and he actually uses two different words. The first carries the idea of sovereign authority, complete rule, and the second is simply the word for master. How do false teachers deny that God, that Jesus, is their sovereign authority and master? Well, again, it's not by getting up and offering a lecture about how to live lewdly. Their life is the lecture. With their words, they might give lip service to the idea that Jesus is Lord, but with their actions, they deny his authority by their disobedience and rebelling against his commands. Jesus speaks of this in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, when he asks, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Like, it makes no sense to call Jesus Lord without submitting to his authority. It makes no sense to claim Jesus as master unless you are committed to being his obedient servant. And so who has the authority to tell you how to live? Who has the right to give you commands? If you say Jesus is Lord, that he is master, Listen, your Lord and Master has not been silent. He has, he has called you to salvation, Jude says. He has set you aside for his service. He has preserved you in eternal life. He has poured out his mercy and peace and love on you. And in doing so, he has every right to tell you how to live. That truth is the, his part of the historic faith 
that was delivered to the saints. And it is worth fighting for. And simply watching as those around us deny his authority is no small matter. Y'all, there are times when we are, <laughs> we are called on to rejoice in our common salvation, to be so exceedingly glad that the Lord Jesus has saved me and he has saved you and I am so thankful for it. But there are other times that it calls for writing a letter that you don't want to write or preaching a sermon that you don't want to preach or taking action that you don't want to take. And at those times, how will we rightly contend for the faith? The only way that we will contend for the faith is if we are content in what the Lord Jesus has done, that we're servants, we are slaves of the Lord Jesus who have been called and set aside and and preserved, that he's poured out his, his mercy and his peace and his love on us. He is our Lord, he is our master, and we will do what he says. 